taking us from the hills of Afghanistan to the gates of the Playboy Mansion. Tune in as we delve into the new novel, Music for Love or War. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in, and welcome back to another edition of Book Circle Online, where us book lovers get together to delve into all of the new novels that are hitting the market. Uh, I'm your host, Katerina Kazayas. Of course, you can catch up with me anytime here at Book Circle Online, or, of course, uh, via my social media platforms. I'm at Katerina Kazayas across the board to make it easy. Uh, but it's not about me today. It is about our author, Martin Burke. Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited to have you here. And before we delve into your book, I just want to introduce you a little further because you deserve a bigger introduction than just this is our author. Martin is actually uh, an award-winning screenwriter, director, documentarian, and author... Uh, you've uh, been a winner of the prestigious Peabody Award for Documentarian Films. So, big, big congratulations on that one. Thank you. That was for a thing we did a couple of years ago on combat journalists. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those projects that when we started, we could never have imagined what was going to happen in front of the cameras. It was one of those moments where things just broke loose. What happened? Well, people started having reactions, these tough combat journalists. Mm-hmm. And I've been in combat in several places around the world. I was never a combat journalist. I never wanted to go to war. I'm a Canadian so that we don't fight that many right. wars. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but no, I've, I've seen a lot of these guys covering wars, men and okay. women. Yeah. And there is a trap if you get into it for too long. It becomes an addiction, a drug, and you need the adrenaline. For the journalists, you mean? For the journalists. Okay. And we saw, after a while, it takes a toll, and sometimes an invisible toll until Mm. it explodes. Mm. We've seen uh, the term PTSD is just overused like crazy Mm -hmm. these days. But for some people, it's a reality. And we saw... We're talking to some people on camera, and suddenly they started to relive the moments that they were really under fire with horrible things happening around them. And that reliving provided some pretty visceral uh, filmmaking. Right, right. Well, um, I know there's an element to uh, to some of these things. I don't want to call it war, but part of uh, part of the novel that we're going to be talking about today uh, is taking place in Afghanistan. It's a story that takes us from Afghanistan to Malibu to Toronto to back to Hollywood. Um, but I had read that you came up with the idea while you were in Pakistan. Well, I was years ago. I went to the border areas between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Okay, as a filmmaker. Yeah, I was doing a documentary, which is one of the, which is one of the ways that I research a lot of my books. Okay, I will run off and do a documentary. I did a book years ago called Ivory Joe. Part of it took place in Harlem in the 1950s, mm-hmm. and I made a documentary for CBS about the old black R&B film, or or the old R&B singers who couldn't get paid their royalties. Mm. And we got them their royalties, and they paid me back wonderfully by taking me in tours of Harlem that I could never have gone on on my own. This thing, um, I was flying back and forth to these wild border areas, areas you do not want to go in now, and I didn't know. I was rather too dumb to know how dangerous it was. And um, we had all sorts of experiences there. But um, as you said, the book 
takes place in a lot of different places, and a lot of things came together to make the book. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the book without giving the plot line, you know, without giving the ending away. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the plot line. Okay, it's basically on one level, it's about finding love, losing love, and then trying to recreate and refine that same love. Always a much more difficult task the second time around right. than the first time. <laughs> um, it's basically about two young soldiers mm-hmm. who never expected, never wanted to be soldiers. Mm-hmm. One of them ends up in Afghanistan because it's the only way he thinks he can find the woman he really loved who was kidnapped and taken to Afghanistan. She, He was a young in actually in the book he was a young Canadian Mm -hmm. and this young girl shows up in his high school class one day and she is from this wild border area and they fall in love and of course she is according to her family supposed to go back and marry the man chosen by her brothers and her father that's Ariana that's Ariana and she's virtually kidnapped and she's taken back there and married off to an old warlord just a spoiler alert here that I met the warlord who she married a guy named Zadran there is really a guy named Zadran and he was this tough fierce mean just the way you describe him just like I describe him and um so this becomes Ariana's husband she's married off in a marriage of convenience Mm. between the clans so Danny the young guy joins the army just to roam the mountains and try and find her and that's one of the two love stories. The other, of right. course, is Hank, yeah. which is the Hollywood love story. And he loses the love of his life into the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood and the clubs. And she's a wonderful young woman who has a twin sister who is a, her exact opposite. <laughs> everything character-wise. That, everything right. that she is character-wise, <clears throat> her twin sister is the evil twin. And the twin sister lures her into this life of glitz and Hollywood, and Mm. she becomes one of Hugh Hefner's five blondes. Right. So he can no longer stop what's happening to her, and she goes into a world of the party, the endless parties and the drugs, (laughs) and waking up with men whose names that she can't quite remember. So the other guy, Hank, he goes off to join the army just to get away. Right. And, you know, the, the thing that I liked about this book was the through line of the love story. Because I'm a woman, so I did appreciate that. But I found the uh, the descriptive writing on the scenes when they're out in combat, um, you know, they realistic. And I wanted to know how much of that was because of your own experiences, you know, in those parts of the world. Part of it is through my own experiences. I mean, I trekked into Afghanistan with four... Uh, Afghans who did not speak a word of English, and we trekked over mountains and. Was hills. this during the war? Like the this last ten was years actually, or earlier? No, no. This was a much earlier. This okay. was when the Russians were in there. Oh, I went in, in there way back 80s. then, yeah. Yeah, in the eighties, right. and I went in there and I saw combat with these guys. And some of it looked almost pretty. I mean, it was really weird. You'd see the mortars landing on the, sh- on the hills opposite you. And uh, we climbed a mountain in the middle of the night one time uh, to attack a Soviet garrison at dawn. Mm. Uh, and all this kind of thing. So I can't tell you what was research and what was real. It was right. a mixture of the two. But I came from a family 
uh, my old British mother hung on the wall the two masks of drama, tragedy and comedy. Mm. And I believe in flipping them because I think we're always so close when we're with one, we're close to the other, and vice versa. Uh-huh. And that's what I was trying to do the whole book. Right. How uh, much of, because um, I know you mentioned you're Canadian, you're from Toronto. Yeah, but I live here in... In L.A. In L.A. Right. and in Toronto. <laughs> How did you transition from Toronto to L.A.? Well, I was never expecting to come to L.A. I came down <laughs> here once with a friend of mine. I, I was doing a movie. I came down here with a friend of mine. He said, I can't wait to move here. I said, I never want to move here. And a few years <laughs> later, I was living here. I got a call at the time that Dustin Hoffman was really one of the most powerful guys when he did Tootsie. Okay. Uh, Dustin could call the shots. I got a call from some guy who I didn't know who he was. He turned out to be the guy who ran the most powerful agency in Hollywood, this place called Creative Artists. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy, Michael Ovitz, had called me, and I didn't know who he was. And they said that we want you here in Hollywood. And I, I almost hung up. I thought, this, <laughs> is, I thought this, this is absurd. This is some Hollywood idiot. So to make a long story short, I came for three months. And it's turned into, like, decades now. There, so there you go. Here. Now, yeah. now your local Santa Monica, yeah. you were saying. I, I am. Right. I am yeah. Santa Monica. Now, what were you working on back then that caught their attention? Well, guess Something wh- caught their attention, right? Guess what? A novel. Huh. I wrote a first novel mm-hmm. called Laughing War. It was about a comedian who was in combat, and it had a lot of elements to it that appealed to Dustin Hoffman. Okay. So Columbia Pictures bought the rights to it. Yeah. And while I'm working with Dustin, um, he said, you know, it's not supposed to be this easy for somebody like you. You don't just come down here and everything works like, well, guess what? The film never got made. The book never got made into a film. And I, and if I saw Dustin again, which I haven't seen him quite a while, I'd say, <laughs> guess what? It's not that easy. Right. Yeah. That's, that's funny. This one is actually your sixth novel. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. How does, um, how does novel writing differ from screenwriting? Wow. Um, because you've done both. Well, actually, this... I never know the real answer to that because I prefer to work on the unconscious in some ways. By that I mean, somebody called me. There was a, a there was a critic from Hartford, Connecticut, said, mm-hmm. "Where did you get the idea for this book?" And I'll give you this answer or that answer, and I never n- really know what's real. I subscribe to the old movie, uh, the old movie comic, uh, W. C. Fields who was really tense on all the movie sets, and he would juggle. And he had this juggling act he did, and he was pretty good at it. And then one day somebody was studying how he juggled, and they told him, your hand is here, your hand is there, this, that, the next thing, and they broke it all down. And for two years after that, he could never juggle. (laughs) So when somebody says to me, how do you come up with books, I will probably say, I don't have a clue, Um, which is a roundabout way of saying the difference between screenwriting and uh, the book. The book is a lot more interior monologue, obviously. Mm. You, you can get away with a lot more um, things that in a film would have to be shown by looks or by mm. or whatever. Uh, obviously, too, the other thing, too, the book, it is the reader who has the active part of the imagination because you can read that book and you your imagination will fill in how the characters look and what they're doing. When you go see a screenplay turned into a movie, mm. then it's all there filled out for you. So you have to understand those dynamics. It's so tough, and, and I resonate with that because one of my favorite authors um, is a, a lady named Diane Gabaldon. So she's written uh, 20 years worth of, I think it's seven or eight books on this story. It's a love story, and it's a, sort of a historical uh, novel back and forth. And I've just been following these books for 20 years almost. And it, recently, about two, three years ago, they got um, made into into a television series. 
Exactly. And I refuse to watch it. And it's now on season three for exactly <laughs> that reason. I have these yeah. characters yeah. in my mind. Yeah. I love them in my mind, and I don't want to see them translated into someone else's vision of what yeah. I, I think of. So I have a tough time when they take books into movies. How many times have you gone to see a movie and say, oh, it's not as good as a book? Not as yeah. good as a yeah. book. Almost yeah. always, yeah. right? Yeah. Almost yeah. always. I think the only one I would say that was good were the um, the Godfather trilogies. Oh. They, they, they oh. really did a phenomenal oh. job with those. That's the classics right there. But, uh, but, yeah. but I think that's it. And it was way better than the book. I, right. was, I was not a huge fan of Mary Poole. Right. Mary Puzo's book. Right. You know? Yeah, but, the book was flattish. Oh my God. So Amazing. good. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So sixth novel. Um, you know, and this is not a you know, not a small book. This mm-hmm. is a big book. How long does something like this take you to write? From from con- concept to I'm holding it in my hands and I'm on book circle. <laughs> Again, uh, there's a hyphenated answer. Not long and a long time. Okay. The not long <laughs> The not long as a few months, and then I usually to write sit, to write to it. Write it to, okay. Yeah, but but keep in mind, um, it was forming over years. For instance, the young woman Ariana, who is married off to the warlord. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask me where did the book come from, I would give you one of my stock answers. One of them being, I was in Copenhagen, Denmark. Mm-hmm. I was in a very heavily guarded place, fortified, armed guards all around, very secret place. With young, in Copenhagen? In Copenhagen, Denmark, okay. with young Muslim women mm-hmm. who had escaped from their families, wow. their uncles, their fathers, their brothers, fled, and had to be very careful fleeing because the taxis were all driven by friends of their uncles and brothers and all this, and, and the taxi drivers would often turn them in. Mm-hmm. They fled to this place to escape being married off uh, to men they didn't love. And this was something that was so interesting. They had a joy and a spirit and a life that was incredible. Mm. And while I was there, one of their number was gunned down in the streets of Copenhagen. There was a cell phone photo that appeared on the front page of a Danish tabloid newspaper, which I've got that tabloid up in Toronto. And the photo, the cell phone grainy photo, shows a young woman lying on her back, her hand up in the air, while the gun is pointing down, the gun held by her Um, brother who executed her. Oh, my God. So that is as rational a starting point as I can think of for a love story for trying to get somebody out of that life. And that was one of the points that I think something in me said, you know, I need to honor this. I need to make a love story. And, and, out of this. and, and I need to bring yeah. a little bit of attention yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and the prevalence that it still is in some oh. of those countries. Oh. You know, it really and, is. And not in, it's not just in those countries. Right. It's also, mm. especially in Europe. Mm. I mean, marriages are arranged and that is it. Don't talk about love in that world, you know. So, mm-hmm. and the other thing too is this uh, young girl Ariana mm-hmm. finds a love for something she never knew existed, which is music. Mm-hmm. The title of the book, "Music for Love or War," she finds love of playing the piano, which she has to play secretly because if her father and her brothers knew she was doing it, she would be punished beyond belief. And there's a scene in the mountains mm-hmm. where the other guys 
mother, a flamboyant character who lives in Venice, <laughs> a woman named Annabelle who was a former model in London and Paris and now just ekes out a living in Venice. She sends her son, Hank, mm. the other soldier, a package which includes CDs of what they look at and think the music is from somebody named Liber Ace, and it turns out to be Liberace. Liberace. And they play that music right. into the mountains to drive the Taliban crazy. Uh, do you listen to Liberace? <laughs> well, I was curious as to how that came to be when I was reading. I well, thought, you know, I had to. Pull this from? I had to, and I can tell you all the versions of Kitten on the Keys <laughs> and the Beer Barrel Polka right. and the Warsaw Concerto. <laughs> Absolutely. I became a fan of Elise. <laughs> that's that's uh, fine. Would you like to see this translated to, to, to into a movie? Uh, well, that's very interesting. Your timing is interesting. Hmm. As we speak, I've just come from a meeting with one of the major networks, hmm. the cable networks, who uh, called me and asked me to come in and talk about a limited series. Oh. And in a way, I, of course... Usually the gold standard is a movie. But we are in the golden, platinum, whatever you want to call it, age of television. And this to do this as a six-part or eight-part series would be a blessing because you have a chance to really pay homage to what was... The important parts of the book. Absolutely, and we'll be. Let's be honest. You know, people still do watch more television than they do read books. So this would be a great story to have oh. translated. And also, to your point, you get somebody like you know as talented as a Kevin Spacey doing TV. Oh yeah. And TV has changed. You know, it's not that second tier that it used to be twenty years ago. When I first came out here, no respecting movie actor would mm-hmm. ever want to be caught dead on television right. unless they were really desperate and had to pay the mortgage, right. which, which of course happened a few times. Sometimes, uh, yeah, right. But now, all the big stars, they yeah. have no problems going into mm-hmm. these great series. We are in the in the platinum ages, I and, think. And I think it's a great timing for you because I know just with the, um, you know, with, with this dawn of digital media that we're all in, places, you know, and, and um, networks, not even networks, but I guess they're just channels, Hulu and Amazon and yep. Netflix. I mean, they're all looking for original content. Yeah. And taking something like this, as you said, and making it into a six or eight part series. Although I don't know if I would watch it. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the characters <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. No, that's always the dilemma. And also, um, writing. I, I also write screenplays. Mm-hmm. And a couple of times I've adapted my own books mm-hmm. and it is really tricky you know what what's the trickiest part how was tr- why well the trickiest part is in knowing what to leave out and mm-hmm. that is that's like killing your babies you know sometimes yeah. it is just you can't you can't go in with the same mindset that you wrote the book with. You well, have you to go in with a cold kind of mindset and say, this doesn't work as a film and that right. won't work as a film. And how do I fit all this into 90 minutes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, 90 minutes right. is a horrible challenge. Right. And, of course, as you reference The Godfather, mm-hmm. it can be done brilliantly. Mm-hmm. But, boy, it's not only great talent, it's a little bit of lightning striking, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I know with, um, with, with this, I mean, you know, and again, we, we touched on the Peabody Award, but you, your work has been uh, nominated for an Emmy, shortlisted for an Academy Award. You've won Genie Awards and Gemini Awards. We were talking before the show, folks. We're both Canadian, yeah. so we uh, we bonded. Those are Canadian awards up in Canada, up in Canada. Um, but uh, but but it would be it would be lovely to see you are um, working on a new movie 
that takes place in 1958, Havana. Talk to us a little bit about that project. I leave tonight on the red eye <laughs> to Toronto. Thank you very much. Uh, to catch a plane to Havana, we are setting up. I have been going to Cuba for a long time. Okay. Um, I went with friends just on a whim to see what it was. I travel the world and I wanted to see Cuba. Mm-hmm. We, for a reason too long to go into now, ended up having a Cuban music company. And we had all this old music from Cuba that that we got from the Cuban National Studios and okay. all this stuff. Yeah. So that went away after a few years and it was great. And we were down there a year ago and the opportunity presented itself to do a film in Cuba. So I came back to Hollywood grandly announcing I was going to do a film in Cuba. And everybody said, oh, can we read the script? And I said, I haven't written it yet, (laughs) which was one little Uh slight detail. So it seems like it's worked. (laughs) I'm the wrong person to say that. But other people seem to think that it's worked. And we are going to do a story that takes place in 1958, as you said, Mm -hmm. just in the last two months before the revolution of Mm -hmm. a young American kid whose flamboyant mother, I keep writing these flamboyant mothers. <laughs> did you have a flamboyant mother? I did, sort of, yeah. Okay. She was British. She was very, very... Did you drink tea at home at tea the, time? Yes. Well, okay. she had tea. I never did. I can't stand <laughs> this stuff myself. But but yes, she was quite theatrical, so maybe I'm just writing Frida okay. over and over again. But um, but uh, it, these this kid, his mother takes her fourth husband who who is a businessman he's a hotel executive and it turns out he is the guy who runs all the hotels and gambling operations in havana. for the mafia oh. in havana mm. and that's where the story starts right and it seems like it's got resonance we're having good fortune knock on wood uh so far but like hollywood there's many a slip twixt cup and lip or it's smoke and mirrors or whatever you want to say have me back in a year and I'll tell you right. how we're doing. <laughs> have you um, ha- have you noticed any changes since Castro's passed away? Anything um, interrupting or disrupting or, or benefiting you? Yeah, the old saying, the old French saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly big changes. Okay. Uh, Such as? Yeah, well, what are you seeing? Well, yeah. you go down to the harbor and you'll see these massive tour ships, hmm. which actually disgorge Americans by the thousands for two hours. They come and they buy, All buy the trinkets, cigars and right. trinkets and yeah, rum yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bang, they're back on. Okay. That is new. The other thing we noticed, too, is you see a lot more of these beautiful old cars they got down there, mm-hmm. but you see a lot more convertibles. And the reason we discovered for that is because they heard that the Americans like riding in convertibles, so they took all the hard tops and they cut the roof <laughs> off. <laughs> and they just got shears. So the cars don't actually have anything. They just got cut off in half. They got cut off. They All the roofs got cut off. And they are now convertibles <laughs> so How, what uh, what challenge um, or, or has was there a challenge to get your permit to film down there well we fortunately having had the record company mm-hmm. we had very close friends in the Cuban all the bureaucracies the cultural bureaucracies okay. we knew people and we had very good relationships all the way through, and that has stood us in very good stead. At the moment, mm-hmm. a lot of American networks and a lot of American studios are trying to do something in Cuba, and the Cubans are pretty well freezing them out. Mm-hmm. We have been given enormous, enormous freedom to film there. Mm-hmm. There's a, there is a place called the Malacan. It's a road that runs right along the ocean. Anybody that's been to Havana will know the Malacan. It is the main thoroughfare. Okay. 
think of the highway in your local city, the major highway, and that's what I'm going to be closing down. Wow. And actually, wow. actually, when the guy said to me... You do know some people. Do you want to close the Malacon? <laughs> and when I said, yes, I do, and I thought he would say, no way, his question was, how much? And, you know, for how long? <laughs> so then I knew we really... Wow. Had, so we really got the clearances down there. So is that film going to then chronicle the departure of the Americans? No, or, or that that will chronicle... Does it touch that at all? Well... I don't want to... Uh, maybe we'll no, back away from this no, no. if you want. I don't want to no, give no, it away. Stop me if you've heard this okay. before, but it's a love story. <laughs> <laughs> um, it takes place because this young guy falls in love with a Cuban woman okay. who basically her family is doing everything to destroy the operations secretly, clandestine doing everything to destroy the operations of his new stepfather mm. so he's caught right in the middle mm-hmm. and that's the have story. you cast this movie yet? We, I just was uh, thumbing through emails and we have some names that we have approached the agents at the highest, okay. closest level Great. but of course the last thing I would do right now is be dumb enough I right. would be dumb enough to talk about it right. <laughs> uh, speaking of characters um, I always wonder when, when people write a book I want to get back to your book for a moment do you have a favorite character that stands out after you finish the project is there anyone that you think you know I resonate with this guy or I'm rooting for that guy like there's Hank and there's Danny in yeah. this one do you have a favorite of those two no it's asking me to choose between my children okay but if you ask me in all the writing that I've ever done, mm-hmm. what's my favorite character? Uh, this book I was telling you about that takes place partly in Harlem in the mm-hmm. 1950s. What's the title of that one? It's called Ivory Joe. Okay. And um, it was a love story that began at the divorce between a husband and wife in New York, garment district guy, and his okay. and, and his very uh, like social activist wife in the 1950s. But it's told through the eyes of a 12-year-old girl. And that would be my favorite character. And that was tricky. That was really scary because obviously never having been a 12-year-old girl, (laughs) there was no real research I I could ever have done. I was going to say, that's an interesting vantage point to take as an author, right? It it was one of those things where Hmm. when it was done... I mean, the publisher would either have said, you are out of your mind, or, okay, we'll go with it. So, fortunately, it was the latter. It turned into, there's still some major stuff happening in a movie on that right now. But that was my favorite character. Her name was Christy, and she was the daughter of this couple who... Was watching this divorce happen. who, Who were always trying... She and her sister were always scheming to get the parents back together. And they could not quite understand, yeah, it could happen, but it's not really going to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. these two were oil and water or whatever. So never going to happen. So that was that would have to be my favorite. And you character. said that that one is in discussion to be. That's the one. To, yeah, that one. To become a book? That one uh, had maybe? a. That one had a lot of major players fighting over the rights of it. Hmm. Uh, uh, the Daily Variety did a story called Burke Book Back. I always remember the title. It was because they were fighting wow. over the it's option a nice rights. problem to have. It was a wonderful problem to have. Let me yeah. tell you. May we always have those kind of problems, but um, it. It was one of those things that settled down for a while and now suddenly has come back. Okay. Well, so, well, lots, of, lots of things up in the air, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah ask me in a year. It's, <laughs> right, it's we'll one of those things here. again, once again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have a, I'm curious, um, your background, um, educational background when you were 20, 
Were you a journalist? Were you a filmmaker? Were you a, what, what, what did you study in school? Hmm. I grew up um, in the suburbs of Toronto. Mm-hmm. I was actually destined to be taking over my father's bulldozer company. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I spent the summers overhauling bulldozers, which to this day, <laughs> you don't want to see I hate again. engines. <laughs> and if anything goes wrong with my car, I turn the radio up so loud that I can't hear it. That's my way of you're, fixing you're things. Done yeah, with engines. Done. So we had a big kind of plate glass window, huge window that was staring out on Prince Edward Drive up in Toronto. And I would look out on Prince Edward Drive and nothing was ever happening. And I would look at my father's magazines, Time or Newsweek or one of those things, and there's all this exciting stuff happening. I would look out the window, nothing. Time, Newsweek, all this exciting. So I said to myself, I want to be there, not Not there. Not here, right, yeah. So when I was... 1718, I took off hitchhiking across America, riding in buses. I took off for Southeast Asia war zones when I was 21 or something, and I've never stopped. I heard that you paid your own way to get to Vietnam yep. during the war yep. to cover it as a freelance journalist and photographer. That was That's a little bit crazy, no? Th- that was insane. And it was great. <laughs> that taught me all I need to know about Hollywood, how to survive when you're in a war. But but no, that was an experience which, when I look back on it, my parents were crazy. I mean, I was. But just they let a kid. you go, right? They couldn't have stopped me, but but still, they said, "Okay, bye bye." Wow. So off I went, and I got myself in no end of messes. I flew on bombing raids and jet fighters. I was in in a thing called Operation Hastings, I think it was called, and there was a big combat operation, and um, I, I was actually sleeping in a hotel called the Catnet Hotel. And it was the cheapest hotel I could... In, uh, in which city? In, that was in Saigon. Okay. And I could not afford to eat. So the only way I could eat, and I lost about 20 pounds, the only way I could eat was go out into combat with the troops because they got fed, and if they got fed, I you got fed. You did something, right? So that was how I stayed wow. fed in there. So it was a really interesting experience. You could feel it, though. You could feel the authenticity in the novel. If this guy has been in these situations, I could feel that reading this. I tend to live it and then write it, you right. know, as yeah. much as I can. Mm-hmm. Not always, and some stuff you have to research, but but I I really am totally into living it first in some way or another. I think you have a have an insight that you can't get from sitting in a room mm-hmm. on your own and trying to create something. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, the only thing I can say about the next book I'm going to write is that it's about a gossip columnist, and that I don't have a clue on. So. <laughs> now, okay, so I'm going to take it again. There, you've got a concept in your head that you yourself don't even know how it's going to uh, f- unfold. I know. Or do you? Have, do you have the skeleton in your head? Well, always, always I know a beginning and I know an end. Okay. But the happy accident happens over and over. <laughs> like, I know where I'm heading when I write a book. Mm-hmm. I know the characters. Like, for instance... The part in the nightclubs of Hollywood here, mm-hmm. when I was really starting to write that, I knew I needed to really know the nightclubs. Right. So I spent hours and days. Recently? And no, at the time I okay. was actually doing this book before yeah. I actually got to that part. Okay. You could have called al- me. We could have gone out. <laughs> we could have. <laughs> but I also learned something about that, too. There was a young guy who was my, he was my host, my guide through all these nightclubs. He was a promoter of sorts okay. of these clubs. And we were in some club, it was on Sunset Boulevard, where the book opens. Sure. 
and, and we went past the rope line and the bouncers and all this stuff and Walk the right lights in. flashing <laughs> and the glitz and the guys all these idiots buying three hundred dollar bottles of of right. cheap champagne 20, $20 or something. Vodka, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he looked around. And he said, "There's one thing I have to tell you about these clubs. Everybody in them is totally miserable." He said, "Look around. They're all pretending to be happy and having a great time." They are really very miserable. And he said, how we know this is that if they find somebody, that if the guys find a girl or the girl finds a guy, they fall in love, we never see them back here ever, ever again. Uh-huh. So that was uh, that stuck with me, you know, and that was part of what right. was in the book. True of the book, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. How... Um, <laughs> I, I want to ask you, because I, I know that there's people watching and, you know, somebody that's 20 years old and sitting at home, if you had to give them a piece of advice, would you say, I don't want to call it an easier path, but what screenwriting versus novel writing, if I'm 20 and I want to be a writer, Two things. you have some advice? Two things on that. Follow whatever your passion is. Don't follow what you think might be easiest. Mm. Novels are tough, but screenplays are tough in their own way, too. Screenplays can be done quicker than a book, but follow whatever you're passionate about. But secondly, be prepared to to meet rejection. (laughs) Be prepared because everybody... I remember I was talking about Dustin Hoffman. Mm -hmm. He told me a story I've never forgotten. When he was at the height of his power in Hollywood, and that was in a Hollywood that actually doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. but he could snap his fingers and studios would jump he said you think i've got such power he said listen years ago after i had had all these big hits of the graduate and midnight cowboy and oscars and all this stuff i went into a trough i was doing films like who is harry kellerman Mm -hmm. and alfredo alfredo films that nobody saw i was yesterday's news Mm -hmm. i was washed up and you've got to be able to expect the troughs. Mm. And you've got to be able to expect people say, oh, that's no good, and move on. So that's just part of it. I think part of the uh, the advice that I was given recently, and it's good advice that I take to heart, uh, you have to, you know, you, you need the persistence. Mm-hmm. And you need to sort of look at somebody's no as simply, in your mind, meaning next. Yeah. You know, because that's their no. That's y- not your no. Yeah, you absolutely right? need to make it that way, but the... But the kind of codicil to that is you also need to be very realistic with what you're hearing. Mm. And if somebody has a better point than you do, then you have to acknowledge it. I always remember, I was directing a famous movie star, really powerhouse movie star. And he would come in every morning and he would stand this far from me and he had 20 new ideas for the way it should be shot. And I think, oh my God, he had one idea shoot the scene with him lying on the kitchen counter and I thought that's the truly dumbest idea I've ever heard but a voice in me said no wait a minute maybe there's something there I didn't see maybe he's right so we tried it his way and it was way better Mm -hmm. so you've always got to know what you are all about but Mm -hmm. you've got to be able to say hmm maybe I should look at that you know very important now does that come with maturity that open-mindedness. Um, <laughs> have you have you become more open to uh, to collaboration? Probably, probably. Uh, but some people go through 
and make the same mistake over and over again. And those are the people that might not be on the show, maybe. I don't sure. know. Um, but, yeah, there is a process. Once you have told yourself at the age of 21 that you're a genius and you've been smashed in the mouth a few times, yeah. you kind of figure out a bit who you are, like I said, right. and you start listening to people um, that are... I would recommend a corny thing, which I do a lot. Which is what? I read the Rudyard Kipling poem, If. Okay. We're um, writing that down. Write this down, people. Rudyard okay. Kipling poem, If. Mm-hmm. That if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters both the same. Mm-hmm. That's one of the lines in there. The other line, which I subscribe to, is is if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it, blah, blah, blah. Mm. It gets all kind of corny, and it's old Victorian, and it's old, all the empire. You can hear the bugles sounding <laughs> in the background, but there was a lot of truth in, in that, there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's a good guideline. I want to touch on something you said a little while ago, um, that Hollywood has changed. You've been in Hollywood for quite a while. How has it changed? The studio system is basically broken down. Um, the studios are now, they're kind of, you call them, just divisions of huge companies, and everything reports to Wall Street, which is why, hmm. which is why it's kind of broken down into two different categories of films generally. This is a huge generalization, okay. obviously. You've got the blockbusters, the $150 million films, the special effects, the Spider-Mans, the, right, right. the Batmans, Avatars, all this stuff, right. all that stuff. Yeah. And you've got that stuff. Uh, that's what the studios do. Okay. Very seldom, and obviously this isn't absolute hard and fast, but very seldom will the studios do the films that come out in October or or in September, they're the ones that generally win the Academy Awards. Now, the small films that are made independently. Mm. So that is very, very different. The studio bosses used to have a lot more freedom. I had friends, a guy named Bob Chartoff, who died a few years ago. Bob was an old-timer. I learned a lot from him. He made Rocky, Raging Bull, Right Stuff, all these big, big films. Bob worked in the studio system. Okay. And at the end of his life, it was all these indie films and things and crazy financing that's cobbled together from here and there. And Bob didn't understand that world. He was a product of the studio system. And the studio system made some great films like The Godfather sure, you're talking right, about. Right. Or, you know, Butch Cassidy and all this stuff. But um, it's just a different world now. Mm-hmm. And stars are often not what drives a film. A lot, yeah, you'll have uh, Robert Downey Jr. and all this stuff, but a lot of the films are driven by the special effects and mm-hmm. the visuals and the Marvel comics and all that stuff. I was going to say, right, and we've seen a resurgence of, um, you know, of, of even Wonder Woman is coming back, and, you know, there's, um, you wonder sometimes if there's any original thought, because they're just remakes of things that had been made 20, 30 years ago. I have a friend who worked for one of the major studios, and the head of the studios called them all in for a meeting and mm-hmm. said, I want you to understand one thing. We are not in the movie business. We are not in the film business. We are in the franchise business. <laughs> that is our business now. And that's why when you talk about the Wonder Woman's eye, because if one works, well, guess what? There's going to yeah, be another Wonder right. Woman and another one and another one. So You make 17 X-Men, yeah, right? That's yeah. the franchise business that <laughs> right. they're all talking about. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. Uh, before we leave you, because we're getting to the top of our hour, um, your book is dedicated to Laura. Who's yeah. Laura? Laura is my wife, mm-hmm. and she has read more than any human being 
should read probably and she is and she and i have been around the world hiking mountains around the world and reading books around the world so this is the laura who gave me both the lyrics and the music absolutely i love that uh parting words anything you'd like the uh the audience the listeners to know about this particular book first of all where can we find it well it's in most of the bookstores i was just on a book tour up in seattle and palo alto and i know they carried the books okay so i can only presume it's in bookstores amazon and all the usual places right so there we go so go to amazon.com and now everyone these days buys everything on the internet <laughs> it would seem although although one of the interesting things that i saw is that there are independent bookstores coming back now it is really an interesting phenomenon and you go to some places like like the bay area or like seattle and i think portland's the same i didn't go to portland but there are places around America where independent bookstores are starting to come back. I love bookstores. Yeah. I love physical books. I like to smell yep. them and touch yep. them and tear yep. them and yep. write in them. They're fabulous. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We are going to definitely keep an eye on uh, the progress of this book and also your movie, the new one coming up, which we haven't titled yet. We're not going to share that. but uh, It's called Dancing in, in the Dark. Oh, Dancing in the Dark. Awesome. Dancing in the Dark, Havana, 1958. Yes. Uh, but we're not talking about Havana. We're talking about music for love or war. A uh, really fun book, um, really interesting book, and it ties in, like we said, a little bit of love, a little bit of war, a little bit of Liberace. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well worth a read. Um, Martin, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was. Thank you. Uh, and for you at home, don't forget, you can tune in um, to watch all of our Book Circle interviews on our website, bookcircleonline.com. We also have these up on YouTube and on iTunes podcast, so you can find us many different ways, which is great for both of us. Uh, again, I'm your host, Katerina Kazayas. Tune in here for more great book discussion, Book Circle Online. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menunos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.